So um, I'm going back and forth between like reading the bio you gave me live on the call or just letting you introduce yourself. Do you have a preference there? Would you rather kind of like uh, lead in and, and tell us a little bit about yourself instead of me reading about you? Uh, yeah, sure. I can do it that way. That sounds good. It might differ a little bit from the bio because I, <laughs> I was probably much more articulate in the bio. So um, yeah, just let me know. Uh, are we good to start or? Yeah, um, we'll go ahead. Uh, so I will let you introduce yourself. Okay, cool. Uh, so hi, everyone. It's nice to meet you. My name is Margaret. Uh, so I run a small web development agency. So I've been a web developer for the last 10 years, and I've gone through this sort of transition of creating, um, like building my freelance clients, and then eventually taking on more developers and building into sort of a, a small agency. Um, just among the last, like, I want to say like three months, so I built built that out a little bit more throughout 2016 through 2021 uh and then i'm starting to like scale back a little bit so i'm just taking on a really small selection of clients and i'm actually going a little bit further into teaching so that's the that's kind of the cole's notes version of it uh there's definitely been a lot of like growth challenges and and stuff that you think seems like a really cool goal and then once you get there you're like oh this is not what i expected at all so definitely a lot of those for sure <laughs> <laughs> i can relate to that um yeah. so i guess um maybe by way of uh you know um chronological narrative or what have you like pre-web development days what were you doing like how did you get into web development as a discipline yeah for sure so after um so for university i went to university for like um, human physiology. So I went for physiology. Uh, the intention was to like go to med school and all of that. And then when I really kind of sat down, thought about it, I was like, I don't know about spending the next 10 years in school and then being like a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt when I'm finished and all of that. So uh, I went on to do my master's and then I started doing like a little bit of research. So I did research for uh, like some Canadian TV shows that needed um, so like some cooking shows would need some like nutritional information and stuff like that. So they would need like a little bit of research and studies to back up kind of what the hosts were claiming to say in the uh, uh, in the episode. So I would like collect the studies and papers and things like that and do that. So it was interesting because it was during that job that one of the TV hosts was like, like she had her own website and she's like, I can't figure this and this out. Um, Oh, and then also I was like a trainer at the time. So I taught like outdoor boot camps and stuff like that as well too. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the hosts of the show was sort of saying, she's like, I can't update my website. Like you have to hire a developer because of course, as you know, I mean, that long ago, it's so hard to um, do any like DIY or no code stuff. You pretty much had to have like access the code to do everything. Um, so I was like, well, I'll let me give it a try and just, I'll try to like YouTube stuff and figure it out. Uh, and it's so interesting. Cause like from the moment that I started like modifying her website, it was this immediate switch that happened. And I was like, Oh, the instant feedback of being able to like change something and see it change right before your eyes. I was like, okay, this is much more satisfying than like collecting research papers or like personal training or boot camp where nobody like they do what you ask of them sort of in the moment. But that was the thing about personal training. It's like you try so hard and there's like very little feedback to you. Mm. I mean, people just have to be like so dedicated um, to see results. So it was that immediate feedback of like the stuff happening right away. I was like, oh my God, this is this is it. I love this. And then I just went down this like crazy rabbit hole. So I started taking on a few other people's websites just for maintenance in the same industry. And I eventually kind of like started digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And then um, sort of around the same time, I had a friend who was starting up a like one of the development boot camps. So she had created a boot camp and then needed some like lead mentors there. So that's when I started doing like a little bit of like teaching and mentoring off and on. So I did that up until uh, I did that for like a few years and I was like, 
I guess the the sort of next logical step here is to is to grow, uh, is to scale, because um, around that time, I mean, it still happens now, but the narrative around like, I want to say like 2014 to 2016 was like scale, like you have to scale everything, um, which is understandable. So I was like, well, the probably best way to scale my freelancing is to take on other developers, bigger projects and scale into more of a, a sort of boutique agency. So, uh, so I did that um, starting in, so I incorporated 2016 and then started to take on some bigger projects and gradually took on like some developers freelance and then hired them full time. And then, um, yeah, was able to, to sort of create something that uh, we could take on bigger projects, solve bigger problems, uh, which I also love. And then of course you come across like bigger problems too at that time, but yeah. And then that's kind of how it, how it all evolved. So it definitely was, I kind of came across it um, on accident and then I just sort of fell in love with it. Sure. I can relate, especially like the, the feedback loop, uh, you know, thinking about, um, I've experienced this at times in my career in management, but like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that with helping people like training or coaching, the feedback loop is kind of glacial there compared to, yeah. like, oh, I, you know, I changed this CSS and now it looks different. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, so, um, in thinking, you said something that I wanted to go back to a little, um, which I, I think might be of interest to a lot of the folks in our community that are listening in here or will listen later. A lot of them are interested in maybe going off on their own or doing something um, as a side hustle, like you know, building other income streams than salaried nine to five. And one mm -hmm. of the most common questions that I get is, uh, you know, how do you specialize or differentiate or not be commodified? So it sounded like you started out in a specific niche and then your first impulse was to go find others in that niche is that about right like was did you start out early freelancing just like can you talk about that a little the early days of freelancing there yeah and it's interesting because there's part of me that's actually never really left that niche uh and what i mean by that is like the when i first started it was uh the woman's website who I was sort of doing support for was a nutritionist. So she was like a chef and nutritionist. And then it's interesting because once you have like one thing like that in your portfolio, it just attracts more people of the same niche. So it's, it's expanded a little bit, but I still find myself always working with people in the general sort of like health and wellness industry. I also think that has partly to do with my like with my educational background as well too mm. so when i went into it i think this might be hopefully some good insight for people who are looking to make the transition and kind of and niche down is that i found that um my first thoughts when i first started web developing was like there was a ton of imposter syndrome and i was like i don't have a computer science degree i don't have this and that and it made me feel like i didn't know as much or wasn't capable of doing as much in the field. Uh, but I think I try when I try to switch that around to think like, okay, well, what do I have? I have like a background in health and wellness. I have like a degree in like human physiology. I know a lot about the human body. How can I use that to my benefit? And I think bringing that to the table gave me a really like intimate understanding of clients who are in that field because I came from the same, like I came from a place that could also speak their language. So there's huge advantages for coming from computer science, but if you don't, you can use that sort of niche that you already exist in. So if you have a nine to five job in marketing, coming to someone like as a developer with a marketing background is hugely valuable to certain people. Hmm. And even in uh, like different industries as well too, like if you're, if you work at a restaurant or you're a cook or a chef or something like that too, making, and you wanted to transition into like freelance web development, having that background, you could start making websites for chefs and restaurants and things like that, because those, you have now an intimate understanding of those problems that you can solve for people. Um, so I try to sort of switch things around and then made my niche the stuff that I had a background in already. And the more you start to create 
projects in that same niche, the more people you're going to attract of the same niche. And it kind of kept snowballing. I just went with it because it was like, I, it was the lazy way of doing it because I never had to advertise. People just came to me, which was great. <laughs> um, but I think, so don't let not being having like a computer science background dissuade you because I, your background could be even more valuable to your potential clients for sure and kind of carve out a niche there. I think that's a great uh, tale to hear for folks too, um, just because of how I think that people maybe sell that short. There's at least in my travels uh, when I was consulting in the software world, there was a lot of veneration of the generalist, which is you know somebody who goes around um, from like programming job to programming job, learning new mm -hmm. stacks and all that, um, which is a skill to be sure. And I think it makes people employable in a very valuable way. But um, I, I like this conversation because I don't think those same things serve as well when you're trying to establish a freelance practice. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're, um, you know, an interesting counterexample. So the the people, when you started doing this, it was inbound business. Like you didn't go out and say, okay, I'm going to, target other people similar to this it was you know through your first client's network or something like how did those early um secondary pieces of business come to you yeah so it was my first it was through my first client's referrals and then it was also through um there was sort of another so that was one component i wanted to niche into because i really was familiar with the health and wellness space and i knew that a lot of people there at that point lacked an online presence tons of them have websites now but uh the other component of that too was that i also had this sort of thought of well it's great building like a blog for someone but the best way to build an ongoing relationship and ongoing income from that person is if they're making money from the thing that you're building. So that's why I really yeah. wanted to go into to e-commerce. So I bring that up because uh, <clears throat> so those were definitely inbound, like everyone from health and wellness. But I was like, I really need to figure out how to attract people specifically that are selling things online as well too. So in that case, I took I did seek out a couple projects just outside of like kind of tangential to the health and wellness field that I knew were selling stuff. So I had a friend, for example, who um, was a hockey coach. So and she wanted uh, online registration for all of her classes. So we built out uh, like a custom WooCommerce site to handle registration for all of her classes as well, too. Again, it's like kind of tangential to the to the health and wellness area, but now it's highlighting some skills like um, like working with WooCommerce and like custom, like semi-custom e-commerce solutions. And for that, because, because that wasn't inbound and it was something that I specifically wanted to include in my portfolio, I just did it for like really cheap, which I know a lot of people don't, like they say, obviously charge what you're worth and all that kind of stuff. But I do think that if there's like something, like a direction that you specifically want to go, and there's an opportunity to do it and there's so much more that can pay off uh from doing that and that it's on your terms i am a big fan of doing stuff either for free or cheap i think i built a website for like 500 bucks for them or something um but yeah i do think things can get muddy when stuff's done for for cheap and for free which is can be a touchy subject but if you want to move into an avenue that you've never been into before and have proof like have social proof for that i think it can be hugely beneficial for sure for what it's worth every for the most part if i'm <clears throat> ever you know with the business hit subscriber or at my travels if i'm offering something new as a pilot it's usually like i'll do this essentially at cost and mm -hmm. you know in exchange for that maybe you can give me a testimonial so i'm a fan of that um yeah totally one thing that I wanted to go back to um, that you mentioned, I think that is really interesting, and I wouldn't have thought of just off the cuff is, it sounded like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of identified early on at saying, I want to go and work with businesses who view the work that I'm doing for them as a profit center rather than a cost center. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of people don't pick up on that, especially like the engineers that might write into my site about freelancing, like that are used to working for big enterprises and they're used to putting together, you know, platforms within companies or like helping them get unit tests going or continuous integration. 
and these things that aren't necessarily directly tied to revenue are a long way from revenue. Um, and what you're talking about is identify a need that somebody has that will help them make a whole bunch of money and the sales become easier or, you know, just in general, it's a more viable way to start a business. Am I understanding that correctly, that you identified that early on as I, I want to go after this, help people make money? Yeah, for sure. I think that was something that that clicked early on. And that's been like the foundation and sort of guiding star as to whether as to like who I would go for for projects. If there was ones I really wanted to do, I would like actively actively go after them. And then if there was projects that came across my plate that were very much just a um, like a brochure portfolio kind of site that didn't really have that uh, that capabilities, that was sort of my my guiding filter that I would start to filter projects with because I knew that once I started and built them something that was generating the money, like you said, it's so much easier for them to justify additional costs when they come up or justify additional phases wanting to build it out more than something that's just, um, that's just kind of like sitting there not generating any income for them. For sure. Yeah, I think that's, I'm, I'm really glad this came up because I'm going to actually file that away when people like write into me and ask for advice and whatnot, like, um, because I imagine too, it helps with the referral process. Somebody's going to be excited when their business has just opened up a whole new revenue stream or something. And that's, you're going to, I would guess you probably got like unprompted referrals, like, oh, you've got to go, um, you've got to go do this. Did things like that happen? Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things with that was because, so there's sort of two sides to this that, um, um, that people need to remember as well, too, is that you're creating a lot of value by creating this system that allows them to make money. The other side of that is you're taking on like a huge amount of responsibility. So if something goes wrong uh, during like the launch of an online program, um, I like, I have had stuff go wrong where it's cost like thousands of dollars because there was an error. So you're also taking on, um, you're taking a lot of, a lot of Ross responsibility on as well too. The good thing, the other side of that one is like, because you're taking on so much responsibility and creating their a system that makes them money, ideally without them having to worry about it, you can also charge a lot more money for that stuff as well too, because the value is sure. a lot more evident. Um, but yeah, so a lot of it was either people would refer, refer me to like their colleagues sort of in the same space and stuff like that. Um, or you can also, because when you're creating something for someone that makes money, you can also say, it depends like how much, a lot of clients don't want you to give away, obviously their exact numbers and stuff like that. But you can also say like, Hey, I created this thing and this, this sales process that led to like a $200,000 launch. And these are, and, and you're not making it up. Like there's, these are true statements that you can say. So it's also, it's testimonials that people, testimonials and referrals coming inward, but it's also stuff that you can confidently say that your work is contributed to as well. Sure. Yeah, totally. So I guess on the flip side and like, um, by the way, I'll come to ask questions like a little downstream in, in building out an agency later, but in the early days of freelancing, did you on the flip side of this have any just, uh, you know, war stories or battle scars, like things that happen, lessons that you learned the hard way? Because so far we've got, you know, a, a pretty happy path here. Like, did you yeah. <laughs> bang into anything awful early on? <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of stories. The good thing is, and I try to think about it now, like all the stories of the stuff that have happened is um, like, it makes for good stories now. Nobody <laughs> died or got sued or anything. So ultimately, like everything worked out fine. But I would say the biggest, biggest piece of advice, at least for me, uh, would be to like trust your instincts when you're first talking to someone. Um, there was one time that, um, so there's like two incidences, two stories that I can tell to sort of show the differences. But uh, there was one time I had a client refer me to someone and then that, um, that person got in touch with me. And it was just after our first phone call, there was no like overt red flags, but I just had this sinking feeling like we were not a good match. Um, and I do this for the benefit of both parties too. Like not only would it be miserable for me working with someone who's not a good match, but the other person 
I want to give them the opportunity to find someone who works well with them. So uh, I just, it was not a good match. So I said to them, I was like, look, so I made the grave mistake. This is one of the mistakes I made the grave mistake of not saying, not being truthful and just saying, this isn't a good match. Maybe here are some referrals and stuff. But instead I said, cause this is early in my career. I've learned my lesson. Instead I said, I don't have time in the schedule right now. I'm all booked up. I'm booking for this. I think it was in like September, October. I'm like, I'm book, not booked. I'm not booking until January. And you think someone's going to disappear, but no. So, <laughs> so that's the problem is when someone, when you try to like schedule them out or price them out because you don't want to work with them, oftentimes that can backfire. So just be really mindful of that. Um, so she ended up saying like, uh, okay, let's book in for January. Um, and yeah, I ended up working with her and it was, it was a terrible experience in that. And I won't go into like too much detail, but, um, and also, and again, I made the mistake of not being a hundred percent clear with boundaries with clients in that, how they can communicate with me. And now it's crystal clear it's email and that's it. And I check my emails frequently enough that that's never an issue. Um, but before, um, she did have my phone number. So it was calls like calling four to five times a day just to talk about like strategy, which was not part of our, like it was developed strictly development only. <clears throat> um, so the site finally, like it finally launched, um, she disappeared for like months uh, and didn't pay. Eventually she came back on the map and got paid. But so there's one definitely of like, trust your instincts, be clear mm. about your boundaries of communication from the very beginning. Um, like I don't do any client stuff over text. Everything's over email. Sometimes it's over Slack. If they need to add me to their community, that's fine as well. Uh, but so that's one of them. And then there was another, um, there was another story. Is it okay that I'm telling these stories? <laughs> it's great by me. I think like, a you know, applied things for folks to hear is perfect. Yeah. So there's another story about having a contract in place. And I would say 90, 90 something percent of the time, the contract gets kind of looked over, it gets signed, and then it really doesn't have to be addressed again after that. It's very unlikely that the contract ever, ever comes back up. But uh, there was one time where contract was in place, everything was good to go. But <clears throat> After this client, <clears throat> sorry, after this client, I had to revisit my contract and redo a bunch of it because what happened was, um, and this is like a total, will probably never happen to anyone else, but I still put it in the contract afterwards. Uh, so during this client, we created her website. It was great. She was a nutritionist. I think she specialized in like pregnancy. Great. Perfect. Site was done about a year later. Uh, I get a phone call from a federal agent saying, and I told, I thought it was like a, I thought it was a scam, but I got his badge number and everything, called him back and everything was legit. Got a phone number from a federal agent saying that her husband who worked for like a very big company uh, had embezzled a bunch of money and the money they spent on my website was money that had been from being embezzled. So they called me in because they thought they were laundering money through paying like buying websites they thought they were laundering money through my company wow it was crazy so i had to hire a criminal lawyer which costs more than the cost of the actual website itself so and we had to go through like proceedings it was crazy eventually i got absolved because i just didn't know anything about it um yeah it was wild uh and so now in my contract basically says like if they do anything illegal, that forces me to require a lawyer that they're going to be on the hook for all of those fees as well, too. So. <laughs> oh, I've got oh, a chat you. notice here. Uh, it looks like Sherry likes stories. Are awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Sherry. It was so stressful at the time, but, and also I wasn't even in the country. I think I was in San Francisco. I just landed. I was like, this is a joke. And then also my lawyer's like, you better not leave the country. I was like, well, we're too late now. So, um, Yes. Yeah, so oh, for the folks listening, you're based in Canada. Yeah. Right. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> in case you were wondering why San Francisco is out of the country. Um, right. <laughs> so that's interesting. I'm thinking of, um, you know, to kind of summarize here, like at least bite-sized lessons that 
you'd resonate with me too. Like trust your gut. Mm -hmm. Um, if you get bad feelings from somebody on a prospect call, it's probably a reason. And then, uh, oh, I can, and I can really relate to this too, because I come from a background, like it was, you know, as a kid growing up with my family, you want to be polite. So you're not saying, um, you're not saying, I don't want to work with you, or this isn't a fit. It's like, oh, you know, I'm busy. Mm -hmm. And if you assume that people will respond to that by going away, they might not like, oh, great. We'll work together next month. So like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's like super important. And then, uh, you know, I guess the lesson learned about like contingencies and, you know, taking care of yourself legally indemnifying yourself. I think those are great lessons for folks. Yeah, for sure. The last one's a bit of an anomaly. Like you probably won't get federally investigated, but, but having a clause in your contract saying that if the client causes you any additional expense in general might be, might be something good to have for sure. So um, I guess fast forwarding a little bit, um, there was a freelancing practice. I don't know what you would name that, but then there's bespoke media, which is Mm -hmm. um, the agency you built. Um, Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So what was the origin story of that? Like how can you tell us about going from freelancing to, um, starting an agency, what prompted that? Yeah, I think it was kind of just a really quick decision in that I was maxed out by myself. And I was, and that's the thing too, like the realization came when there's only so many hours you can work in a day. And then there's only so many projects like you personally can take on. Um, and, and, I, and I started thinking about scaling and the only way that I thought to sort of scale my income was ultimately to make more of me. Uh, So, so then, uh, so it was a gradual process. Like the, the decision was quick, but the process definitely took a bit longer. So I would say like probably towards the end of 2015, um, I started to not only price projects a little bit higher because I, I thought, well, if I'm getting enough coming in, uh, so much so that, I'm getting burnt out and it's overloading my schedule. I'm going to reduce the amount of projects and increase the increase the cost of the project, which which for anyone listening is pretty much like a natural transition. Like when your prices get to uh, when your prices are at a certain point and you have a ton of leads coming in, you feel yourself getting burnt out um, and just like tons of projects and work coming in. It's probably a good sign that you can start to increase your prices and um, cut back your projects or hours a little bit more. Uh, without sacrificing sort of too much of your income and maintaining your sanity. Uh, so so that was sort of that like intersection that I was in. And I was like, okay, well, uh, I am going to increase prices. I'm not going to decrease work because if I was staying freelance, that's what I would have done. But instead, I'm going to hire on help because and this help costs more money. So that's also how I sort of justified uh, increased rates and stuff like that as well, too. So Um, I initially thought that in my brain, the idea of an agency was like, okay, this, like we're in this office and working together. So, um, so I got like an office space, uh, in downtown. So I live in Toronto. So we got an office space in downtown Toronto, got all of our desks and everything and, and got all set up. And then, uh, I realized sitting, working, under like fluorescent lights all day is not my idea. Like that's not why I got into this. So uh, I we went through the full lease, which was the year. Um, but after uh, we eventually went remote after that. I mean, nobody wants to come in, especially if you work, if you're working on websites and everything's super collaborative and all online anyways, there wasn't a huge need to, to stay in the office and it's an expense that we could ultimately cut down on. So sure. So we got rid of the office about after a year, but we, I scaled up by, um, so you're asking about the very beginning stages. So I would, I think that was sort of the, when I came to the decision, it was that, it was that tipping point of, I have, I'm getting burnt out. So either I get rid of work or I take on, on more, more help. So I decided to take on more help. And, um, and then there was just two of us. And then there was three, and this came in like very small stages. So like one person would be like 
very part-time, then they came on a little bit longer, someone else part-time, then they came on a little bit longer. So it was kind of small growth like that. Eventually, um, we got up to seven people. Um, since then, I've scaled back. So I'm just down to three now. The reason I scaled back was because um, my job wasn't the stuff that I loved anymore. Uh, and it became like just managing people. Uh, and I didn't necessarily want to go down that like super growth mode of like just managing people. That being said, I did speak to, I have another friend who now has an agency of like 70 or 80 people. It's a pretty big agency in downtown Toronto. So, but there tends to be a point that he was telling me about that. Yes. When you're managing like six or seven people, it's just a lot of people and project management, but him along with, I think a couple other people I was talking to did say that once it passes this like 12 to 14 people range and you get, you can now get groups of people with a lead that can be sort of independent of yourself, things almost start to get easier. So, mm. so I didn't grow to the size of like a hundred people or anything, but knowing people in the industry who have apparently around like the 10 to 15 people mark, there is that really difficult hump to get over. And then after that, providing you have processes in place, apparently things do get a little bit easier. So that's interesting. And organizationally, I can see that because if you have six or seven people, they probably all report to you. And that's a lot of direct reports. By yeah. the time you get to 12 or 14, that can't be the structure anymore. There just wouldn't work. So yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, that's... Um, so uh, when you kind of gradually scaled up in this fashion, I think one of the things that I thought would be the most interesting about, you know, kind of um, the progression of what you've done with the web development agency is that decision to scale back. Um, were there other factors at play? Was it purely that you wanted to still be involved in project work or were there other things happening there, elements of risk or anything like that? Like, and, and what was that? moment like because i am i imagine i might be wrong about this but i imagine that there's probably some doubt about that like i just got to push through this people don't scale back you know so can you like take us through that decision making process to scale back yeah i definitely felt i went through like a whole gamut of feelings that's for sure and i think one of them that came up was like am i a failure for scaling back um and there's there's a lot of a lot of like mindset stuff that happens too, because you don't scale back, you grow it bigger and bigger and bigger. That's just what you do. Um, so I definitely had to do a lot of like uh, introspection on, okay, well, if this is how everyone else has done it. Like I really have to dig through like the reasons why I would want to scale bigger because scaling bigger would definitely, um, it would be a point where the whole thing, like that would be my life trajectory. Um, and it would be a lot harder to turn back the more I scaled. So I kind of reached this point of like, is this what I want to do? And is this what I want to build uh, sort of for the rest of my life and starting to look out? Because I think I've always in the past, I've looked out a like for one quarter, for six months, for a year, for maybe two years. But I think at that point I started, I sort of had to start looking okay, well, what does the next five and 10 years look like? And is this where I'm going? Because if I wanted to scale that big, those are, that's how far I would be looking out ultimately. Um, and it just wasn't, I think instinctually, it just wasn't where I wanted to be. Even having like a small taste of it, I was like, I don't think that like five or 10 years would this would, that this would be uh, like what I would be happy doing. I think I would probably be more happy working closer with clients and also dividing my time between, um, cause that's the thing too, building an agency to that size, you probably have one of two goals, either that's your life trajectory or you're building it to sell it ultimately. Um, but if that's your trajectory, uh, it would be like all encompassing to a certain degree. So that would just be all of your life. And I knew I wanted a lot more variety in my life. Like travel is really important for me. Um, and like friends, my personal life's really important for me. So 
and like teaching and instructing and being able to just pick up side projects, things like that. And I know that also seeing the people that I know that have done this, like that sort of expansion to like 70 to 100 people, uh, they don't have time for a lot of these sort of things outside of outside of that. So that was that was a decision. I definitely didn't come to it lightly, but I did know that the the path that it was going probably wasn't the long term one that I wanted to go down. So uh, yeah, so the scaling back worked at like, um, it worked at a good time. You guys might be asking, like, did I fire a bunch of people? I didn't. So I, it, it happened really naturally. We, we would, the people that were, that left first were on contract. So we waited until those contract, like we, we saw projects through till the end and naturally wound down. Um, and then one of my main developers went on to, she had no prior experience, uh, but she went on to work for Shopify. So I was like really proud that she was able to like use me as a reference and move to Shopify afterwards. So that was, nice. that was really cool to see. Um, yeah. So it was, it was definitely uh, something that I thought a lot about and I'm glad I made the decision and it's, it's opening up some other stuff for, for me to do too. So um, what I'd like to ask now is for, for people listening, um, a lot of them might be, you know, doing freelance or contemplating freelance. And there's a couple of like inflection points that you've had, which provide, I think, pretty unique experience. So the, the first thing I want to ask is if, if you imagine people who are either freelancing or contemplating doing it and maybe later want to think about starting a team, what would you say to somebody or what advice would you give somebody who's on the precipice of I'm freelancing, there's enough business coming in that I could probably flip into agency mode. Should I or should I not? Like, what would you say to somebody at that moment in their journey? Yeah, I would definitely say starting, if you know that that's in your future, starting now to create standard operating procedures. It's so boring, but just like it's something that I didn't do beforehand. And my time in training someone how I wanted something done, like whether it's workflow, setting up a site, like you don't, you never realize how much stuff you've sort of just internalized already in your own work process and having to teach someone else, you start to really realize like how much of that that you have to convey. So you will save a ton of time creating like standard operating procedures. And I would start at the very beginning. So if you're in development, I would start standard operating procedure for workflow, standard operating procedure for um, like staging sites or whatever staging environment you're using, and then a standard operating procedure for deployment. And if you can start with those three, um, there's going to be other ones like how to handle customer emails and like customer service type of things too, but making sure that technically everyone's on the same page, because if you're just troubleshooting a technical process, because you both have different ways of doing something can just eat so much time. Hmm. Um, so I would give that insight in like really solidify your workflow and try to optimize your workflow while you're on your own and then record your own workflow in those different, in those like three different areas. Um, what about, so you're executing, you know, these SOPs, you're preparing, you bring on a team and, um, things are going well, let's say, what advice would you give people for knowing whether they're, I'll, I'll call it right-sized, um, you know, that you had a moment of introspection. I'm not sure exactly what, um, led up to that. If it had been a creeping, oh, I got my kid in here. <laughs> um, if it had been a creeping thing or, or what have you, but like, uh, I guess, given that you made the decision to scale and build an agency and then also the decision to scale that back, I imagine you have some pretty intentional advice about like understanding whether you're at the right amount of folks that you're managing or that your agency is. So I guess if, um, how would you counsel people that are thinking of starting an agency both in terms of like looking ahead and maybe in the moment knowing whether you have the right size of team, whether starting an agency is even a good idea for you, you know, um, I guess just imagine somebody who's freelance thinking of starting an agency. How do they know whether they should? How do they know where they're at the right size? Yeah, for sure. So it depends 
I would think on a lot of things. Depends on what your long-term goals are. Like it's totally reasonable to build up an agency and sell it. I know people who have done that as well too, especially if it's, uh, I don't know if Shopify does this much anymore, but I know that if you specifically have like a Shopify development agency, a lot of times Shopify will go after you and go for like a buyout and kind of absorb you, which is a kind of a really nice thing. <laughs> but, um, so there's like a couple of companies that ha that happens too in the city. Um, so definitely in the direction, like, do you want to grow it? Do you want this to be your legacy or do you want to, oh, okay. <laughs> or do you want to uh, potentially grow it to sell it? Because that's a possibility as well too. Um, also knowing that the big picture of what you want to happen is a lot more glamorous than like the day-to-day -day of actually of actually doing it um which is fine there's a lot of things that are that that's the case with as well too but just knowing that um uh, it's going to be a lot of people management if there's no one and then ultimately if you're the one growing the agency you're responsible like so you can't pass the buck and tell your client oh well I had one developer who was like slacking or did this, or I had to let go of because of this and this reason. So that's why your project's not done on time. The, it, now it's up to you. So you have to step in and not only do your job, but if someone on your team falls behind, especially if it's a small team, you have to step in and pick up the slack from that as well too. So that's a consideration to know because you're not just dealing with computers, you're dealing with human dynamics. So making sure that that's something that you really want to to be invested in in the long term um and then also part of the reason i scaled back was was also for health reasons too there was some issues going on where i had to have like multiple surgeries within the same year um and it was just contributing to like the overall burnout as well so really evaluate like what in your life energizes you and gives you energy and then what depletes that energy as well too and then also thinking about all of the elements of those two things how they play into the growth of a really human-based business i know it's computers and it seems very very straightforward to to build something in as like a freelance developer uh dealing mostly with code but as you expand, it changes drastically from just focusing on code to really focusing on human dynamics. Um, so I would say be prepared to manage people problems more so than computer problems for sure. <laughs> Whether that's client um, develop or client or team or even client and team dynamics sometimes sometimes can play a role in that too. So that would be my insight. Can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Okay, the, my cat just knocked the Aww. headphone cord out and it said <laughs> it was switching my mic to something else. So I thought it might be a mess. Um, and so in, if I'm thinking about what I'm hearing from you, like the, seizing on a couple of like, you know, specific nuggets, I might in the position of a freelancer thinking of going agency, like one is uh, think about the end in mind, you know, five, 10 years, like how do you, do you think you want to do, you know, a sprint or a burn over the course of five years to build something you could sell and maybe go into kind of the investor uh, class of the workforce, or do you want to be a human manager, a managing director of an agency, you know, mm -hmm. So look forward and and really think about that. And then also ask yourself the question, does managing human beings appeal to you? Um, and I wouldn't want to put words in your mouth here, but like, do you agree with this, that the idea being, if you're just looking at it to scale and earn more money, there's probably other ways to do that. Um, you need to be somebody that wants to manage people, not just looking at them as a source of margin. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And that, I think that brings up a good point too, because another huge aspect of it is just managing money. And I love working with money and I love managing money, but labor is expensive and margins are not super high. Like unless you're building out larger scale applications and you have like one plus year contracts to, to build these out. If we're talking like smaller e-commerce sites or Shopify sites where it's where the time is is based on a few months and 
we're talking about independent, um, like independent e-commerce creators, it's not necessarily uh, like the margins of the amount of labor for testing and everything that goes into that. It takes a long time to like figure out where those sweet spots are. So I would say even just testing out pricing and figuring out those sweet spots, that would be like a solid two years. And there's possibly going to be projects in that time that don't make any money. So ideally, in retrospect, there's definitely projects I would have priced differently for sure. But it's a total but pricing for projects that include the labor of a team is such a different beast than just pricing for freelance. So that's something that um, I would definitely sort of consider as well too. And also know that the higher your margins are, the more it's going to cost your end, uh, like your, your client. So making sure that you're conveying that kind of value to them too, if you're making really high priced projects as well. So I guess holistically, um, if somebody is looking at starting an agency web development or, you know, I guess technical agency in general, mm -hmm. um, you've had some, you know, advice in here, like uh, understand like pricing psychology, make decisions about, um, you know, what you want your future to look like. I guess, do you have any like tactical or kind of holistic advice? Like, let's say someone listening is doing freelance web development and they're pretty committed. They feel good about wanting to start an agency. Mm -hmm. Just any other like pieces of advice you'd give them or, or tactical next steps or what have you, just what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that was enjoyable to process too. And there's a lot of stuff that I did that I did right. Um, so tactical, definitely starting with standard operating procedures. So SOPs and those, those various areas and also hiring, um, hiring consciously and hiring slowly. So there's some, so what I did while I was hiring, which was actually a great idea, which is why I had some really great people, um, <clears throat> is I was mentoring at a um, development boot camp. So if you have any of those like development boot camps around you, I was a mentor. So I was getting paid to mentor. I love teaching, which was great. Mm. But then also you can see how people are working. And then right when they come into the boot camps, you can like poach them. So <laughs> that's ultimately what I did. And I was able to get people who were new in the field. So they were eager to learn. Um, and then also they were really grateful. They wanted jobs as soon as they left, giving them some good real world experience, paying them well and having them and not going through a super lengthy, because what can also be super expensive too, is the hiring process of people. So the hiring and training process, if you go through all that to find out that someone's not the best fit, can be very expensive, especially for a small business. So sure. I would say that's a great tactic. If you're looking to scale, start, find out where like development boot camps and stuff like that are. Um, and you can start sort of like mentoring or like TAing those kind of places. And you'll be able to be exposed to like a lot of really great talent. Um, and it really helps everyone and it helps you and it helps the boot camp too, because it raises their um, employment statistics afterwards as well. So it really is a good, uh, a good fit for everyone involved doing that. I think that was a great tactic in retrospect, saved a ton of money on, uh, potential bad hires, which can cost a lot of money. Um, uh, sorry, I'm just reading the chat. Yeah, for sure. Um, really looking at people's portfolios. Obviously if you're pulling someone straight from bootcamp, they might not have a big portfolio. It's uh, a lot of times if people who are like Bartholomew, who is a designer, um, portfolio is like an amazing way to see, to see what they've done. Developer, it's a little bit harder to see like the, um, the quality of work that they've done, depending if you have access to their code or not. So I would say like that's been a really good tactic, the SOPs and scaling in a sense of when you're hiring people, taking them on contract first and then hiring them full-time if uh, um, if they work out. Now I know that in the US it might be it might be different, but once you hire someone in Canada, even if it's within the three months, you're you are fairly tied to that person and you have to come up with pretty reasonable cause to let them go. Um, but a contract could work out really well for both of you in that you both see if you if you like it and if it's a good fit. So I would think those three things 
SOPs, poaching from boot camps, and um, like hiring slowly and intentionally for sure. I love that, especially because I think two of the things in particular, the um, SOPing and hiring from boot camps, like dovetail very necessarily together. Mm -hmm. If you're going to bring people along and you have a particular way of doing things that you want to train them in, you can't do that with relatively inexperienced people unless you've got some pretty great SOPs. If you have those SOPs, um, then you can, you know, get those sorts of people and really kind of shape them into fitting in with your business. So I, th I, I think that's a great piece of advice. Um, I can picture the other end of the spectrum where you have zero SOPs. So if you get a big piece of work, you essentially need somebody that's kind of an autonomous and expensive hero to say like, here, you know, <laughs> we've got this work, you go figure it out and hopefully everything works out for the best. Yeah, <laughs> that exactly. seems stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I guess, you know, to, to wrap and we'll get into Q and a here in a second, but, um, I wanted to give you an opportunity, like, is where can people go to learn more about you, um, see what you're doing, any, uh, links you want me to drop into the, um, description once we publish this on YouTube? Yeah, for sure. I think I'm the most active on Twitter. So if you ever want to chat, um, hitting me up on Twitter is probably the best. You can go to my website. I'm redoing it. I feel like developers are always the last person to have their website redone. So, <laughs> uh, so you can go to my website, but if you want to, if you want to chat about something or like get some specific info, anything like that, I think Twitter is probably the best way to go. I can pop it in the chat if you want. Perfect. All right. And um, with that, I'm going to throw it open to Q&A here. You can go ahead and unmute yourselves if you want to ask a question or drop it in the chat if you uh, don't have audio for some reason or uh, mic audio. I have a question. Hi, my name's Scott. Um, do you have like a template? Of, of your contracts, like for your clients that we could see? Because you mentioned like putting some of the, you know, um, clauses in there, like if we're just getting started in freelance stuff, like I don't, I don't know how to type up a contract, you know, properly. Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to share mine. Um, I'm just going to make a note really quickly and then I will pop it in the Slack channel if you guys want. I just want to, I think because the last one I send out always has like, the last set of customers information on it. So let me strip out a version of it and then I can put it in, I'll post it in Slack for you guys. Thank you. No problem. Uh, other questions, anybody have anything they wanna ask about? I'll check and chat here too. Hi, uh, Mark. So I just wanted to let you know, I highly relate to your background. I come from a health and wellness background as well and have transitioned into sales for hit subscribe. Um, and I've definitely dealt with the imposter syndrome part. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious, like, what was your best tactic? What did you um think about most as far as getting over that? Yeah, that's a good question. I still struggle with it. So it's hard <laughs> stuff to, it's tough to give exact, uh, like good advice of how to get over imposter syndrome. Um, I think the more I immerse myself in, um, in groups, like I'm in a few different Slack groups, like that's how Eric and I know each other, we're in the same group. So I'm in a few different Slack groups and then I start to see like a lot of the questions that other people are asking are a lot of the times, a lot of the stuff, like the same stuff that I'll be asking, even when they do have computer science degrees and stuff like that. So sometimes I sort of latch onto that. I'm like, okay, we're, we we're on the same playing field in some capacities. Like we have the same questions and there's some stuff that isn't making sense to me. That's also not making sense to, to some other people as well too. So surrounding yourself with people like that, who are also super supportive has been, uh, has been really important. I'm trying to think like, I don't know. My intention is to give advice, to be like, who cares what anybody else thinks, but also that's so much easier said than done as we know. So. 
Um, so, but really everyone truly to some extent has no idea what they're doing. I had never, I mean, that's the good thing too, is like, I almost think sometimes it can be advantageous. Like I went in with like the hubris to think that I could build, uh, that I could build an agency mostly because I didn't, I think I was just like foolish enough to not know what was involved. So I almost think that sometimes not knowing, not knowing what's involved or not knowing how difficult thing, things are, a lot of the times work to your benefit and work to my benefit. I mean, I feel like that's how I've gotten to, to where I am. Cause I was like, Oh, of course I can like make this transition. And because like, who's, I don't know, like nobody told me I couldn't. And like, I didn't realize how difficult it was. So there was some sort of like, um, almost like naivete that got me past some imposter syndrome, but there's definitely like instances that, uh, that it sinks in for sure. Um, I don't think that was a ton of advice, but it just a bit more of my experience in it. <laughs> I just appreciate your candidness. So I, I really enjoyed your stories and it's kind of, um, I think sometimes you hear talks and it's like this success after success after success. Yeah. And you're like, wow, lucky you. And then uh, to hear some, some um, little minor catastrophes. Is kind of oh yeah. So thank yeah. you. No problem. <laughs> All right. Anybody else have questions? I have uh, one more. So I, I've tried doing some freelance work in the past. Um, right now I'm a senior engineer at a mid-sized company. Um, I always get stuck with like, okay, so I want to price by the project or I try, and then I end up totally under quoting mm -hmm. and like just and then the project like just drags on and on and on like how how do you give it a very like solid boundary of like this is what i'm going to build yeah done so that it doesn't just like last forever because that's the last thing i want is like to try to do freelance work and then still be getting emails you know three years i had one guy email me a few months ago for a project that i did like 12 years ago oh, yeah that happens for sure uh, yeah, definitely. That's a great question because that happens. Uh, it happens a lot. And a lot of the times that opportunity can be, okay, well now the person's coming back. So they need like a new phase of work, but also like, how do you differentiate when the project's done and how do you scope properly? I think scoping properly is, is like a, a big conversation all on its own. Um, but to get a good indication, especially when you're first starting off freelancing, it might sound like a lot. But I would say across the board, whatever you're pricing within your first, like, uh, so how long have you said you've been freelancing for, or like how many projects approximately? I don't know. I've been an engineer for about 12 years. Okay. Yeah. So I would say like for your first, like 10 projects freelance, you would definitely want to add at least 20 to 30% from to like the very final number that you think that it's going to be. Um, and then as far as closing projects, clarifying scope i might i'll check to see if i have any like scope documents or anything that i can pass along but clarifying scope from the very beginning has been hugely advantageous because it works to both of your benefit they get clarity on exactly what they're going to get delivered and you also get clarity on like what your end date is and then i always say like when I'm scoping something out, okay, here's all of the deliverables. It's going to be this many pages. We're including this and this feature within this budget. We can't include this feature. So just over time, you'll kind of get to know like some of the things like in, when you start building similar things, people expect, will expect certain features. So just being clear that, Hey, this is not going to include this and this feature because those are out of scope, but we can do that in a separate phase. So the wording of like, with stuff being within scope and additional phases also helps too. Cause when I have conversations with clients of like, okay, within this budget, this is what we've got within the scope. And this is the approximate timeline, eight to 12 weeks or whatever. Um, and then I would say at the end of it, so the end of the project is on launch. So when it's deployed and when it's no longer in my hands and basically in your possession, that's when the end date of the product hap project happens. However, beyond the end date, 
in my um, in my contractor proposal, I always have um, a period of support because, uh, as you know, as an engineer, things always go wrong when things are being tested in the real world. So, uh, so I always have. Sometimes on small projects, it's two weeks. Sometimes it's thirty to sixty days. Never usually goes beyond sixty days within within that project, but uh, typically about thirty days. So it's like here's our end date when the product's handed over. Um, and then this is the end date of the project, but the start date of um, your sort of aftercare is what you can call it or something similar, um, but ongoing support. So then I do 30 days of ongoing support and that includes any uh, edits or fixes to stuff we've already created. So they can't add anything new into that 30 days. Um, and they try to, but when you, they try to add something new into it, okay, this wasn't created during the initial scope, let's put that into phase two. And then a lot of the times towards the end of a project, that's when clients a lot of the time will start thinking that, oh, we should add this and this and this, they start to come up with a lot of this stuff at the end. Okay, that's not within our initial scope, let's create a full document for the next phase and we'll try to, we'll start to scope this out as well. So usually at the end of a project, we'll have deployment which is also when the final payments due. So for them, it's this like kind of psychological closing off a little bit. And then they get about 30 days of support afterwards where we can um, where we can fix and edit anything that's been previously built, uh, any errors uh, that are happening. And then anything within that time that's not within scope all gets documented. And if they want to address it right away, a new proposal is given for phase two. So that's the best way. Eric, do you want to contribute like what any sort of boundaries and guidelines between like a clear ending to a project um yeah I, um i'm just trying to think it's been a while since i was doing like application development but um i i do think that the idea in general of like having a distinct like build mode versus sustaining or support mode like if you make that clear from the beginning it's easy to map which one of those you're in um is the issue was the original issue um that like would they pay you if, if they call you up 12 years later are they paying you um or offering to pay for maintenance or is it just hey you did this you know this is part of the deal no, it's just like hey this needs to be updated and just random stuff I think for me anyway, I would um, basically say, okay, I'll send you over a quote as yeah. if, as if it couldn't be any other way. Right. right. I guess uh, last question, if we still have time. Uh, sure. Can you actually, is it worth the effort to do freelancing? Like, do you think it's worth it? Because I make a pretty decent income as an engineer mm -hmm. at a company. Um, could I make significantly more doing freelance? or running an agency, or is it better off to just stay put? Yeah, that's, it's a tough and very personal question to answer depending on the person. So there's also all of this sort of unspoken stuff that doesn't come with freelance, which is like benefits and pension and all of that. Like there's vacation time and there's and sick days. So there's tons of like unrealized value in having in having a salaried or permanent job that to to some people could be hugely important like if you if you have a family or if you have kids a lot of time healthcare is like a, a really big important part of of having that of having that stability um and then there's the other side of it which is the freelance well the benefits of freelance are there is no cap to your income so you, i mean you're t you're only one person there's only so much so many hours you can work but uh so there's benefits to both and it kind of depends like uh, i don't have kids so i think that also puts me in a place of being able to be higher risk so uh and i like being higher risk so I would say it really is a lot of like personality dependent. I do think that if you're a one person solo freelancer, there probably at some point will be a cap that you will make, especially just with client work. If you go out into when you're sort of, when you've sort of had it with client work or you want to move on and you go into like courses or 
podcasts or memberships or digital products where now you can create a ton more, then you can start to create those info products and courses and stuff like that off of your experience. And then the, the ceiling becomes also much higher too. So, and I know a few people that have sort of gone down that freelance to course creator pipeline and, um, that those are the ones that I've seen, like, kind of like their income blows up tremendously. Um, I would say as a freelancer, <clears throat> you, I mean, in theory, yes, you like make your own hours and all that stuff and you work from anywhere. Um, you probably end up working. I mean, I don't know the hours that you're working right now. I typically would end up working a lot more being freelance. Um, so it's such a personal, it's such a personal choice, but I think that those are like the biggest pros and cons. Um, Eric, what do you think? Uh, for me, if I had to summarize it, I would say like employment is a pretty well-defined thing. You're going to work 40-ish hours a week, give or take. Um, you're going to have a certain give or take um, set of standard increases that you get per year. And your, your career, you know, assuming you perform well, is on a fairly predictable trajectory. If you go freelance, there's it's not just more risk and reward as far as I see it. You have more control over aspects of that. So for instance, you could go freelance, bump your, your rate or your charges up enough, and then you would have this decision to say like, well, maybe the way my life is going to look is I'm going to work 25 hours per week. And I, you know, don't necessarily want to make more money. I just want more time. Or, you know, maybe you'll work 60 hours a week and make a lot more money. Um, you get to set a lot more um, criteria about your life. Maybe you want to work from uh, 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. every day. Um, so I think, I guess, holistically, what I would say about freelancing, going to business for yourself in general, is that um, you get a lot more control. It's almost like, um, you know, in, in the programming world, like working with some framework or template versus just, you know, creating everything wholesale from scratch. A lot more customization, a lot more room to shoot yourself in the foot, um, <laughs> a lot more flexibility. I guess that's my holistic take. Uh, any last questions? Um, I do want to get us over to give people a shot to uh, ask you questions in the Slack format if they're hanging out waiting to do that. Uh, anybody else going once, twice? All right, I'm going to wrap it then. Um, thanks so much for joining us. I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, next step is we do go over into the, um, the channel that you're in there and anybody that has like additional follow-up questions um, or anybody who couldn't make it and wants to ask will uh, shoot questions into there. Okay, cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, it's been a good time and uh, we'll see you over in the Slack. Okay, awesome. I'll see you there.